Good morning, and I bring you the Christian greetings from our Lord Jesus Christ, and hopefully we can together, through the study of his word, be drawn to him and to his gospel. I would invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, as we continue this, our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. While you are turning there, I would like also to request that you uh, be in prayer uh, for me this week. I am, have been asked to give the opening address at the convention on Friday evening. The topic of our convention this year is the transforming power of the gospel, and I've been asked to speak on the need for transformation. And it feels pretty big to me. Uh, speaking in front of large crowds does not scare me, but the things that I feel like I must say are hard things, and... It feels uh, pretty big. So if you would, please remember to, to pray for me in that. Now we come here to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and let me remind you kind of, kind of where we are in this book and what this book is about. This book is a discourse from the preacher, the preacher being one named Solomon. And he is... He is on a search to discover meaning and purpose in life. He is he's undertaking this study to find uh, where there is meaning and purpose. And in these opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, the picture looks pretty, pretty grim, pretty bleak. Because he looks, or he studies that area which is under the sun, that is, the earthly sphere. And so he talks about all is vanity under the sun. And the word under the sun keeps coming up and over and over again. The preacher, the, the man Solomon, is studying what's going on under the sun. But every now and again, he kind of punches through and, and, and breaks through that, that under the sun barrier and, and some light shines in. And he, he gives us some insight into God's perspective on things. And we see this increasing as the book goes along. And we see this contrast. Uh, on the one hand, we have life under the sun that seems to be vanity, vexation. It's futile. It's without hope. And in contrast, life that is lived pleasing God, life that is lived with a godly perspective, perspective of the Son of God, that life is where meaning and purpose and hope is found. And of course, as Christians, we know at least part of the rest of the story because we understand and know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ came. God himself has come down to earth. He, God himself has come under the sun to rescue us from the vanity and the futility and hopelessness that this life is without him. He did this by becoming one of us. He took on human flesh and dwelt with us and he died for us and rose again so that we could trust in him. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And would you stand with me as we read? And I will start in verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that, th that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. 
On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. You may be seated. Now today I want us to see four choices. Four choices that we must make in this life under the sun. Four choices that we must make if we are going to experience the kind of life that is meaningful, that is not vanity, that is not striving after wind. I also want to point out then that without Christ, these four choices are no end in themselves. These choices have to do with how we view and what perspective we have on work and relationships and politics. And this goes along well with our Sunday school lesson this morning. But I want you to see here that we have a choice to make under the sun between that which is good and that which is better, or that which is not good and that which is good. We have those choices to make, but in the end, there is a choice that is more important than all of them. And Solomon expresses it this way later on in the book. He says, foolish people are living a vain life. There's no meaning, there's no purpose in being foolish. And ultimately, to be wise under the sun really isn't much better. But it is better, but not, it's still foolish. It's still, it's still vanity, as long as we're under the sun. But wisdom ultimately is better than foolishness, even if it's only a little better. There are some benefits to being wise in this world. And that's the kind of perspective that we want to see on these four questions that he addresses in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So the first question is, or the first choice that we need to choose is to choose right over might. To choose right over might. We see that in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see the choice between contentment 
and achievement. And in verses 7 through 12, we see this choice between relationships and riches. And in verses 13 through 16, we see a choice between wisdom or between wisdom and popularity. And then I want us to see that we must choose Christ over everything. So the first three verses of this book, pretty dark. The preacher sees all this oppression. And he sees that there is no comfort. Oppression is one of the dark facts of life under the sun. We see it politically. We see it in in our political arena. Those who are powerful, those who have the most votes, the most money, they win. It doesn't matter whether they're right or not. The guy with the most power wins. We see this corporately in large companies and small. We see this personally, individually. We see it, we saw it this week in the tragedy in Aurora, Colorado, where a man with force and power was able to oppress a crowd of moviegoers. We see this in our world. We turn on the news, we read the paper, we, we find this time and time again. Solomon observes that there's two parties in this oppression. There are the oppressed and there are the oppressors. And for the oppressed, there is no one to comfort. The term comfort here means to encourage, to, pr- to push on, to encourage, to continue, to give hope. And we, we, we feel sorry. Often we feel sorry for the oppressed. And we might be able to work to eliminate oppression, at least in some small way, temporarily. But it soon crops up somewhere else. And so in our political situation, for example, we have economic uh, stress and we have oppression that happens uh, when those who are economically more powerful oppress those who are not. And so our government enacts laws to try to right that, to try to relieve that oppression. And those laws end up creating a whole new class of oppression for somebody else. On the secular plane or field, in the life under the sun, there is no true comfort. There is no true resolution for oppression. The next parallel then is drawn to the oppressors. The oppressors grasp for power. They do so through oppression. The reason they grasp for that power is the same reason that the oppressed weep. They are seeking for comfort as well. They are seeking they are seeking for meaning. They're seeking for purpose. They they don't really intend, at least at first, to see the innocent suffer. They're just interested in themselves. They're interested in their own significance, in their terms and at any cost. And often the reality and the horror of their oppression is never really considered. There's a man named Adolf Eichmann. He was a member of the Nazi regime. He was responsible for the killing of of millions of Jews. And he described his role in that. He described this as a part of his job description. He was just doing his job. And he was being commended for it. He was being made to feel important. He was comforted in knowing that others thought he was doing the right thing. But in fact, he was doing evil. 
Solomon says there's no comfort in any of this. This is a cycle of oppression that is developed. The oppressed often become the oppressors. More power is sought. More innocence suffers. More power corrupts. Solomon is speaking of this oppression in its evil and cruel forms. And he uses some pretty strong language here. He uses a hyperbole. He says, basically, it would be better not to even be born than to be born into this world where all there is is oppression, being oppressed, and oppressing. There are no answers to this under the sun. The under the sun kind of answers just lead to more oppression. But God does have an answer. And God's answer is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who was our example, the one who suffered oppression. And it says in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet in the face of that oppression, Jesus did not become an oppressor. He didn't seek more power. He didn't seek to defend himself. Instead, Jesus held to the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And that's what we are to do. That's how we are to respond to oppression. We are to take a stand with Christ and for the truth. Sometimes evil will be corrected. Sometimes injustice and oppression may be temporarily at least banished. But when it is not, we must realize that these evils will continue in this world in some form or another until God intervenes in history and his kingdom is perfectly established. In the meantime, we live in the midst of these harsh realities under the sun. We live in a fallen world. But the even greater reality is the kingdom and eternal glory of God. So, we must choose what is right over what is powerful. Not seeking to avenge ourselves when we are oppressed, for then we will become the oppressor. Instead, we must follow the instructions of Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So instead of returning the favor when we are oppressed and seeking to exact vengeance and thereby becoming an oppressor ourselves, instead we are to comfort those who are the oppressor. Often we look at those who are oppressed as the one needing comfort. And they do. But look what it says in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. We're to comfort them with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So we are responsible to respond in a different way than the world system responds. We are responsible to respond in a Christ-like way. We are called to comfort the oppressed and the oppressor with the comfort with which we have been comforted with, namely calling people to the gospel of the suffering Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see here also in verses 4 through 6 that we are not only to choose right over might, but we are to choose contentment over achievement. And the preacher here in, in Ecclesiastes notices, as he observes life under the sun, as he watches people, he notices that there is this spirit of rivalry and contention and competition that exists within us. Man, by his nature, is very competitive. We desire to be the best at what we do. We desire to be better than our neighbor, to have more stuff than our neighbor. And this spirit of competition is what motivates and enables all kinds of achievements in life. In verse 4 he says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of envy or rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Solomon discovers that people compete with one another in almost everything. This twofold use of the word every probably means every type of labor, every type of achievement, rather than every individual instance of those things. But, it, but the point is that achievement often, most times, is the result of a desire to be superior to others. We live in a constant state of competition. This is not far removed from the oppressor and the oppressed. The oppressor is one who wants to rise over others and seek glory for himself, to achieve his own end, his own purposes, at the expense of others. We see this in the political realm and even in the economic realm where there's this huge debate that goes on between whether capitalism is the right approach to the economy or whether socialism is the right approach. And we see that in both approaches, we see it reflected here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Capitalism is that of the competition that of the strongest winning. That's what makes the world go round. It's good for an economic system to have that kind of competition. But then we see what happens with the oppression and those who have the power and how they oppress the weak. And so our governments and our, our people and our economies devise systems to deal with this. And those systems often create even more problems. So it's this vicious cycle and the preacher says it's empty, it's vanity, it's, it's striving after the wind. And there's no end to it. And it's futile. It's empty. This striving for toil and achievement out of envy for your neighbor. Because you see, if all you are about is to keep up with the Joneses, then you will find that there are always some new Joneses to keep up with. If you think you've got to where the Joneses are, you'll look around and you find that there's other Joneses out there that have more and do better. And there's no end to it. 
It's like the sign that says, I don't like this rat race because every time I think I'm winning the rat race, a bigger rat comes along. That's the way it is in this spirit of competition and envy and rivalry. So what's the answer? What's the solution to this? How should we respond to this? Well, one of the responses is found in the next verse, in verse 5, where it says, A fool clasps his hands to himself and consumes himself. He's lazy. He decides that, forget this, I'm not going to trample over other people in an attempt to lift myself up and get somewhere in life. I'm just going to sit down and take it easy. But he's not productive, and he doesn't work, and he ends up consuming himself, starving himself. He folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Some of us realize the evils of envy, the evils of rivalry, the evils of competition, and we determine that we will be different. We don't want to be that kind of person. And so we drop out of any competitive endeavor. But this is dangerous as well because it ends up consuming us. We are not contributing anymore, even to our own welfare. This verse basically says that lazy people eventually make cannibals of themselves. They consume all the resources for themselves. They kill themselves with starvation. In the 1960s, there was a generation of people who got sick of the affluence and the competition and the incredible uh, hard work ethic of the greatest generation, those who came out of World War II. And so this group bailed out. And they claimed the title of Flower Children. And everybody gave up ambition and the drive for financial success. Instead, they just let their hair grow long and they quit bathing and they sat around in the grass and hummed. Obviously, this is not the way to accomplish God's purposes in the world. This is laziness. This is foolishness. God intends for us to work. Hence the instruction at the end of chapter 3 that I read at the beginning, in verse 22, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. That's why we emphasize the importance of a godly work ethic. That's why our Sunday school lesson this morning, Paul said it best when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Elsewhere, Paul said, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than men. The Bible is clear that we are to represent Christ in our work. The issue here is one of motivation. Why are we working? What are we working for? Who are we working for? Whose interests are we trying to advance? What does your work mean to you? And how much, how much of your well-being, how much of your sense of well-being do you tie to your work? How much are you invested? Is your work something that you rejoice in as God's blessing in your life? Or is it a drudgery that you engage in just long enough to get ahead of the Joneses? You're just putting in time, trying to make enough money so that you can retire and take it easy and live a life of ease. That's a misuse of work. Maybe it's like this. One day, 
a mother walked in on her six-year-old son, and she found him, him crying. She asked, what's the matter? And the boy replied, I've just figured out how to tie my shoes. And the mother said, well, honey, that's, that's wonderful. That's great. Well, why are you crying? Well, what's, what's wrong here? Because he says, now I'll have to do it every day for the rest of my life. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like that six-year-old. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you recognize that you're going to be doing this, the same tasks, the same menial tasks, day in and day out, for 20 years. Perhaps you work at a monotonous job, day in and day out. And it kills you to know that you might be working this job for another 30 years. God wants you to know there is glory in the grind. There is glory in the mundane. Shrug off the laziness. Work like today is your last day of work. Because it just might be. Work for Him. Work for His glory, for His purposes, not for your own selfish interests. It will change how you see your work. It will change how you do your work. And now Solomon brings us back to the proper perspective here in verse 6. So we have the extremes, the excesses of scrambling to the top, trying to be better than everybody else. Or we have the reaction to that of just sitting back and saying, well, I don't want to be that kind of person, so I'm not going to do anything. And here we have, here we have the, the, the rest of the proverb. One handful of rest or quietness is better than two hands full of labor and striving after the wind. You see, the wise person realizes that some things matter more than other things. Not everything is equal. So your career is not to be the measure of your self-worth. More money, having more money, can't replace the joy of spending time with people you love. Contentment means that you have everything you need right now. And if you, if you needed more, God would give it to you. So Solomon is saying, rather than grasping for so much, trying to get the next best thing, being a workaholic to get it, Instead of that, be content with less. It's better to have less and enjoy it more. You see, our problem is not the high cost of living. We, we, we tend to talk about the high cost of living. It costs so much to live. But that's not really our problem. Our problem is the cost of high living. Because we want far too much. And we strive and we stress and we fret and we worry the cure for this is contentment. Being willing to settle for less materially if it means we can have some rest, some quietness. Rest in God and His provision for you. We've already heard this from Luke chapter 12. And here I'll give you Matthew's rendition of it. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And furthermore, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So how much more could we enjoy life if we were content with what God has given us? How many families would cease to be divided and destroyed if parents stopped breaking their necks to try to give their kids a better life than they had? Let me close this section by giving you Ecclesiastes 4.6 in the Linford Berry translation. Rather than putting two hands in for 80 hours a week, why don't you put in 40 hours with one hand and with the other hand take your children out for ice cream? Not only must we choose contentment over achievement, but we must also choose relationship over riches. We see this in verses 7 through 12. These verses remind us that people should be our priority. If you're too busy for people in your life, then that means you're too busy. Solomon writes here, he says, he looked again at, at all this vanity under the sun, and he saw a person, a certain person, who has neither son or brother, and yet he's working hard, he's toiling. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never even stops to think, what am I doing this for? Who is going to benefit from this? He has the big house. He has the boat. He has the vacation home on the lake. The hunting cabin in the mountains. He has all of these toys, all of these things. But he never has any time to enjoy them. And nobody to enjoy it with. Instead, he is senselessly and mindlessly in the pursuit of more and more riches. Denying himself pleasure. Enjoyment. Do you know anybody like that? Are you somebody like that? The big point is not whether we have children or relatives to work for. That's not the point. The point is, what do we value? And do we value people over riches? Even if you're not a successful, high-powered businessman, you can probably relate to this person in some small way. It's so easy to become consumed with work. It's easier for some of us than others. But we are busy people. We are busy, so busy sometimes that we miss the significant things right in front of us. How many fathers, how many mothers have shortchanged their children for 10 or 20,000 extra a year? How many young people make great money but don't have friends because they're so busy working? How many wealthy people have accumulated huge nest eggs but have no friends? Do you have anyone to enjoy life with? Are you taking time to enjoy people? Or are you alone at the top of the heap? The need to have someone to relate to, the need for relationship, for human relationship, prompts Solomon to touch on this in the next few verses. He lists four distinct benefits of relationship, of community, of friendship. And we especially need to hear this in America, in the land of the free and the brave, in this land of the lonely, the independent. 
You see, we cultivate this loneliness in our culture. We take pride in being independent and alone. We even have a declaration of independence. We want to make it on our own. And we take great offense when someone like President Obama makes a comment like he made this past week regarding the fact that we are not entirely responsible for our success. So we have this issue with independence. Men especially are raised with this kind of macho attitude. You are portrayed to be a man if you can stand alone as a survivor, as a winner, as on top. But one of the very first decrees of God following the creation of man was, it is not good for man to be alone. Remember the context of that. That was the Garden of Eden, paradise. Everything was perfect. God had just created it that way. And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. So this isn't something that happened just after the fall. This is prior to the fall. God created us for relationship. Think about, think about that a minute. Think about the fact that there might have been loneliness before the fall, before Eve was created. Loneliness in paradise. And then we wonder why loneliness is such a big deal in our culture. Why people complain about loneliness so much. Well, the preacher lists four reasons why it's better not to be alone, why it's better to have relationships with people than to have money. He says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Here he goes back to work again. Two human beings combining their strengths and their resources and working together with their combined creativity and talent and strength. Two people working together accomplish what two people working by themselves cannot. There's something special about working together. There's relationships that are forged. There's a bond that is developed there. I've worked with many people in my short life. And there is a special relationship I have with those I've worked with. Even if I haven't worked with them for years, we can still pick up where we left off. There's something that happens when you work with someone else. And furthermore, he says in verse 10, friends pick up one another in trouble. So if you fall, then there will be somebody there to pick you up. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. So when you are in trouble, who's going to come to your rescue? And this is a problem in our world today. We have people who are loners, who live alone, who don't have a family, don't have a church, don't have friends. And they can die and no one will know about it for a week. That's a tragedy. It's terrible. But if you haven't been working together, if you haven't been seeking relationship with others and cultivating that, then chances are there's not going to be anybody there when you get in trouble. Verse 11, Solomon says, friends warm one another in a cold world. In Solomon's time, cold was a much more serious issue than it is today with all our modern conveniences. We hardly know what to do without our heater and our air conditioning. But we need each other. If you take two coals and you heat them up and you start them on fire and then you separate them, they die out. But if you leave them together, they'll keep burning. It's important for us to be together. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for the church to meet together. It says in Hebrews 10, let us consider 
how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's fan this, this flame, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we come together as people to create a, a bonfire of sorts, a bonfire of fellowship, that we might set each other aflame with zeal for serving the Lord, for loving each other. And then in verse 12, Solomon says, friends hold each other up in adversity. We need other people to give us strength in the midst of persecution and hardship. The cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. It's another way of saying there's strength in numbers. There's friends that stick closer than a brother. When someone, when something comes against you, you need friends. You need relationship. Unfortunately, for some of us, our natural inclination is when we get into trouble, we want to go be alone. We want to go hide out in the corner by ourselves. It's absolutely the worst thing we can do. In those moments, in those times, we need each other more than ever. So, are you helping to bear someone else's burdens? Are you coming to the defense of your brother or sister? Or are you only concerned about your own problems? about your own life, about your own success. We must choose contentment over achievement and relationships over riches. And now Solomon tells us we must choose wisdom over popularity. Verses 13 through 16. Solomon reminds us here that popularity, particularly political popularity, is a very fleeting thing. The story goes something like this. There was a poor yet wise young man and it was seen that he had better ideas about how to run the country than an old, rich king who no longer knew how to take advice. And so the people put this young lad into a position of authority. He had all the great ideas. He knew how to make it happen. And so they put him there in the position of the king. But it wasn't very long until people became dissatisfied with this young lad, and they replaced him with yet someone else. And this... Preacher says, this too is vanity and a striving after wind. What's in view here is that there is this succession of kings, none of whom satisfies the populace. It's better, he says, to stay poor and wise than to become popular by this world's standards. Presidents and prime ministers have extremely high approval ratings for a while but they don't last. Just ask President Bush or President Clinton or President Obama. This fame, this popularity is a fleeting thing. And what's true of politicians is also true for us, for pastors, for teachers, for business leaders. Popularity doesn't last. And if we strive for it and bank our hopes on it, we will be immensely disappointed because today's heroes are tomorrow's bums. It's just the way it works in this, in this life under the sun. So, you want to be president? Okay. You want to be president of the country or president of the trade association that your business is associated with? Well, you'll be fortunate if when you get done with your term, half the people still like you. 
It's just the way it works. So instead of making it our ambition to be popular, to be in charge, we should rather make it our ambition, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. This is a life of service for others, a life in dependence on Christ. If we live our lives seeking after wealth, after prosperity, after fame, after popularity, if that's what we live our lives, life for, we will become terribly frustrated in this life. And we will miss out on the blessings of the next life. But here comes the rub. We can choose all of the right things in this life under the sun. We can choose contentment. We can choose to be right rather than to be mighty. We can choose relationships over riches. We can choose wisdom over popularity. But if that is without Christ, if we do all of that without the perspective of God, we still don't have anything. Granted, it is better than the alternative, but it still doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Because even if you try to find meaning and purpose in being right, in being content, in relationships or in wisdom, you will find that all of these things in a temporal way will let you down. You think you're right. And you act accordingly and then you find out you were wrong. What's that going to do to you? You think that you have good relationships with people and then somebody stabs you in the back. What are you going to do with that? You think you're denying fame and popularity for wisdom, but you come to the point where you recognize that what you're still seeking is self-satisfaction. You're still seeking to be somebody, to be known as wise, to be known as someone who is important. The solution for all of this is to choose Christ over everything. Christ over everything. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is our position without Christ, having no hope in this world, no hope whatsoever. But now, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So do you want to experience true relationships, healthy relationships? Do you want to know what meaning and purpose is in life? Do you want to know what real wisdom is? Do you want to be on the side of righteousness, of contentment? If you were trying to do all of, this, of those things apart from Jesus Christ, you have no hope. We are strangers, we are aliens, no meaningful relationships that, that will last eternally. We will tend to be either the oppressors or the oppressed. We will tend to choose achievement over contentment. We will tend to choose riches over relationship. We will tend to be popular rather than wise. But Christ has come to bridge that gap, both in this life and the next. And Jesus Christ says this in Matthew 11. Come to me, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, that's us, right? And I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. That doesn't sound like rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As you can see from that, from those verses, this kind of surrender to Christ requires surrender. It requires full surrender to take his yoke rather than the one you currently have. To trade in the old priorities for the new. To surrender to him and his design for your life. He has come to bridge that gap. He has come to draw us near to God. He has come so that we might choose life rather than death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent to this world, to this life under the sun. And I pray that you would use your word and your truth to convict us of our need of you, to help us see that without you, even the good things in life are vanity and futile. And help us not to seek and strive in vanity and futility after these things, but to seek your kingdom first. To seek your truth first. To be content with what you have given us. And to long for your wisdom rather than our popularity. I pray that you would help us and guide us in the coming weeks, days ahead, that you would help us to live this way. In your presence and by your power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.